God is at work in you. Of course, you already knew that before you came in here. You know that when you tuck your four-year-old into bed at night and tell her that everything will be all right and you will be there to greet her in the morning, that you are offering her not just your parental love, your grandparent love, but the love of the Holy Creator. You know that when you go with a group from our church to set up a home from a rep for a refugee who's just arriving in Kansas City from war-torn Somalia, that the hands that are making the beds and sweeping the floors are the hands of God who is always working, making a safe home for the most vulnerable among us. You know that when you prescribe medicine to heal a patient's infection, that you are the mind of God at work in the world or when you negotiate a legal case that you are exercising God's justice, or when you pray for a friend that you are being God's very compassion. And you know, of course, that God is at work not just in your personal hands and feet and mind and heart, but through the whole community here called the church, which is why the word in Greek that we read this morning is actually plural, it doesn't really say God is at work in you. It says God is at work in y'all, which is a reminder to all of us that God sometimes works not just through one of us, but through a group of us, and so that we need to work together. But Sometimes, in fact, too many times, I'm afraid, we wake up in the morning not thinking about God at work in us. We think about what we got to get done today. We know, we know, a while back we did sign up to do God's work in the world, and yet something happens, and we, we drift we forget. Maybe even we lose heart. We go through the motions of doing what we said we would do, but we lose the spiritual energy that we wish was in that daily to-do list, that vitality, that liveliness. The calendar tells us that it's the beginning of a new school year, but the third grade teacher drives to her school not feeling the same passion that she felt when she first got her teaching certificate and started teaching. The cool fall air settles in on the September morning and it refreshes us and yet instead of feeling, wow, it's fall, how exciting, instead we think, darn, the chaos of Halloween and Christmas is just around the corner. When I read Paul's letter to the Philippians, I think he realized that somehow we had drifted away from the call and the claim of God upon our lives. Paul writes to the good people at the church in Philippi because he knows, he knows they are already beginning to lose heart. The new spirit that had once been theirs has now been drowned out by the bickering and the heartache. The great theologian Karl Barth once said, there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems in the church. 
Now, I don't know if you find it comforting or disheartening to know that the early church, the one that was formed just in those few years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, was also plagued with problems, just as the church today has its fair share of imperfections. In the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, he references the tension between two particular church members, Euodia and Syntyche, and he urges these two women to be of the same mind, which lets us know, of course, what? That they vehemently disagreed with one another. But surely Paul mentions the tension between these two church leaders because it represents some larger tension that is unfolding within that community in Philippi. We don't know exactly what their conflict was about, but we know that throughout the centuries, the church has had to face a number of controversial issues. Think about the 17th century, when the science was telling us that the world was round. Wow, that threw the church for a loop. And then there was facing the issue of slavery in the 18th and 19th century, and civil rights in the 20th century. And today, the church wrestles with issues like immigration, the environment, and how to fully include all of God's children, regardless of sexual orientation, in our body of Christ. Christians, you know, Christians have not always behaved admirably. In fact, Gandhi once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians, said Gandhi, are so unlike your Christ. Well, sometimes even we Christians agree with Gandhi. We, too, lose heart. And Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi to encourage those who have lost heart. He reminds them that God is at work in each of them and in all of them, and he tenderly and eloquently reminds them how to rediscover that spirit of Christ within their own lives. Now, Paul is no Pollyanna. He writes this letter from prison, and he begins his letter with a little memory game. The English says, if you have ever received love and compassion, but the Greek says, since you have received love and compassion. In other words, Paul says, remember how much the church has loved you? Years ago, I was working with some college students. Amy was one of those students, and she told me that when she was in high school, the church seemed to her to be such a harsh, judgmental, and exclusive place. In high school, she got into trouble for drinking alcohol at the high school basketball game and was suspended. A friend reached out to Amy right after that and invited her to go to church, and after church, her girlfriend said to Amy, well, did you hear the sermon? Amy's friend wanted to know, do you believe in God? Are you ready to make changes in your life to go on a new path? And Amy knew that her friend probably had her best interest in heart, but all Amy felt was shame. Maybe she didn't really belong in the church. Maybe she didn't even believe in God. And so when Amy packed her bags to go to college, she decided to leave the whole God thing behind, and she would just be an atheist. Her freshman year at college was rough. 
She thought about suicide a lot. She met some friends. Some of them even went to church. And during her sophomore year, one of the guys in that group of friends said to her, why don't you go to church with us? Afterwards, we'll go out to lunch. Amy woke up feeling hungover, thinking maybe she ought not to go to church, but she went. Her friend picked her up, and somehow, just by being invited to go with those friends whom she loved, she began to feel like she counted, like she was valuable. And Amy told me that not once did her friend that day ask her if she believed in God, or if she listened to the sermon, or even if she was willing to change her broken life. It was the beginning of a joyful new chapter for Amy. The Apostle Paul invites those of us in the church to remember how someone once loved us, however fleeting, and made us feel welcome, free, safe. Paul reminds us to remember how somewhere along the way, someone, maybe just one person, loved us without any reservation. Embracing us not just for who we might become, but for who we were at that very moment. And then Paul invites them to regard other people with the same kind of humility that Jesus practiced. Can we treat each other with the same humble regard that Jesus treated those around him? Is there space within us to be that gentle kind of presence that we glimpsed in Jesus? In his book, Tribe, the best-selling author and filmmaker, Sebastian Younger, writes about how American war veterans coming home to modern-day society in the United States are often so lost. He faces, he directly addresses the way that we as a culture are doing a terrible job welcoming our heroes. And he tells at the beginning in the introduction of the book about an encounter that he had once. He was fresh out of college himself. He had lived on the East Coast, always wanted to go out West, and was needing some adventure. It was the mid-80s and he decided he would hitchhike to California. He writes, I wound up outside Gillette, Wyoming one morning in late October with my pack leaned up against the guardrail and an interstate map in my back pocket. Remember those things, maps? Do you remember them? He had, it was folded up. Semi trucks rattled over the bridge spacers and hurtled past him at a high speed towards the Rockies. In my pack, he said, I had a tent, a sleeping bag, a set of aluminum cook pots, and a Swedish-made camping stove. I had a week's worth of food in my pack, and I saw a man approaching me on the on-ramp coming from town. From a distance, he said, I could see that he wore a quilted old canvas union suit and carried a black lunchbox. I took my hands out of my pockets. I turned to face him. His hair was wild and matted. His union suit was shiny with filth and grease. 
He didn't look unkind, but I was afraid, alone. I watched him like a hawk. He asked me where I was headed. California? How much food you got? I thought about this. I had plenty of food. I would give food to anybody. Anybody who was hungry, I would help them. But I didn't want to get robbed and I could see it coming. Oh, I said to him, I, I just got a little cheese. I lied. I stood there ready. He shook his head. You can't get to California on just a little cheese, he said. You gotta have more than that. The man explained that he lived in a broken down car and that every morning he walked three miles to a coal mine outside of town to see if they needed any fill-in work. Some days they did, some days they didn't. And this was one of those days that they didn't. So I won't be needing this, he said, opening his big black lunch box. I saw you from town and I just wanted to make sure you were okay. And he gave me his lunchbox contents. A bologna sandwich, an apple, a bag of chips. He probably got it from the church. I had no choice but to take it. I thanked him and I put the food in my pack for later and I wished him good luck. And then he turned and he went, made his way back down the on-ramp into the town of Gillette, Wyoming. The author said that what moved him about that day was not just the soldier's kindness, but the fact that someone took responsibility for another human being. He was treated by this stranger like one of the tribe. And I think that's what Paul is telling us that Jesus did. This is the tribe-like behavior that Jesus invites us to imitate. But it seemed like it's such a struggle for us to imitate that kind of compassion and love. Sometimes the first step to getting the new heart and the new spirit ignited again is to remember how much we have been loved by one whom we least expected to receive that gift from. The heart expands a little, and we begin to imagine that we too could exhibit that kind of Christ-like behavior. Paul seems convinced that we can do it. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. So how do we get that mind of Christ, that perspective, I have long admired a woman named Clara Hale Babcock. Clara was a classic Victorian woman living in the mid-19th century. Clara wore full-length hoop skirts. She would have never been dressed at church like Monica and I are today. No, she wore those black lace-up shoes, a full corset, a hat, and gloves as she walked to church. Clara was orphaned when she was only four months old, and a Methodist minister took her into his home and raised her. As a young woman, Clara got married to a young man in the community, and together they raised six children, and she became devoted to church life, active in the women's group. 
One day, Clara spoke at a neighboring church. They asked her after church if she would become their regular minister. And so in, in 18, I can't even say it, 1888, Clara Hale Babcock was ordained to be the first woman ordained in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. For 30-something years, she traveled across the Midwest as an evangelist, baptizing over 1,500 people. Sometimes Clara had to first take out her ice pick and pick the ice off the pond before they performed the baptisms. One of the male clergy got upset. He said, women really shouldn't be ordained because their brains were smaller. And Clara retorted that she never really knew that quantity instead of quality was the issue. And if it was, she said, we should expect a lot from elephants. It has always been easy for me to remember the year of Clara's ordination, 1888, because I was ordained in 1988, almost exactly 100 years to the day. And so when I was a young woman ordained, and people would ask me, is it a new thing for women to be preachers? I would just chuckle and think of Clara in her big hoop skirts and her ice pick traversing the Midwest, spreading the love of Christ. Something about Clara was unstoppable, not just because she went into the ministry, but because she was so filled with courage despite the odds. And her story fills me with a new heart and a new spirit. If that kind of passion was in Clara, maybe it could be in us, too. My son plays the guitar, and this summer we got to go to see the Herbie Hancock concert with Connor, and afterwards he tried to explain jazz to me. He said, Mom, good musicians don't just imitate the style of another musician. Something about that isn't quite right, and he, you can hear it, he said. You have to hear in each musician the song that comes from within their life, their own story. Each person, he says, has his or her own unique sound. And I think that's what Paul was saying to the people in Philippians. The New Testament scholars point out that there are two ways to translate what Paul says. One is to say, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And the other is to say, let the same mind be in you that you have in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the difference? One is about imitating Jesus, and the other is about being who you already are. Both point to the same exact behavior, but the second translation acknowledges that this great love of God is already within you. And when you are most fully and truly who you are, when you are your true self, your whole self, your fully alive, really real self, then you do indeed resonate 
the presence of the love of God that we glimpsed in the person of Jesus Christ. When Nelson Mandela came out of prison, where he spent 27 years for a crime that he never committed, he said, what we are afraid of is not so much our limitations, but the infinite within us.